Scene 14. O Amiable Lovely Death. Todd Robbins. Read by Joshua Stenkamp, followed by original audio recording. When I took my first flight to Las Vegas to conduct my very first interview, a familiar face walked by me at the airport. A quick Google search on my phone confirmed my suspicions, so I approached Todd Robbins and introduced myself. We chatted casually for a few moments in the terminal before boarding the same plane. Going to our respective seats, I posted a comment on Facebook on my chance meeting. Comments poured in, saying I should interview him, but the timing didn't seem right for me to ask such a question. To my surprise, Todd commented and stated that he was interested and we should stay in touch. Flash forward over a year later, I'm standing outside my hotel in Long Island City, New York. It's early and a dash cold for a thin-skinned Floridian. It wasn't long before a silver-haired Todd Robbins walked toward me from the street. After quick greetings, we decided to make our way to the basement level of my hotel, which has a sushi bar slash breakfast area. I grab us both some coffee and we sit at a small table while the jingle jangle of silverware is being rattled. But, but, people can't be. Yeah. So I'm here with Mr. Todd Robbins. We're in New York City. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Good. How did you get your start in performing? Because I know you're kind of a jack of all trades. Yeah, I, I learned uh, all that I do in prison. And no, no, no. I knew everything I, I do before I got to prison. And no, no, no. It. Um, I grew up in Southern California, uh, the Long Beach area, and it was just the perfect place, the perfect time. A little magic shop opened in Los Alamitos, California, called the B&H School of Magic. I discovered it when I was about 10 years old. Went through the courses there, the beginning, intermediate, and advanced. My teacher uh, is a wonderful performer that's now in the Bay Area, James Hamilton, who is a uh, quite a historian and does a whole recreation of Alexander Herman's act, and including wearing some of the clothing that belonged to Alexander Herman. So it's, it's uh, great stuff. And uh, Jim was uh, a very good teacher, and there were a number of great guys that used to hang out there. Uh, crusty, shady as hell, but, you know, it added character, which was growing up in a suburban community, didn't have character. And then there was also a little thing called the Long Beach Mystics. T.C. Tahoe uh, talked about that. Yeah, it was uh, uh, just a great group, very, very unpolitical group. Uh, it was all about performing magic and, and being doing better magic. Uh, and then from there, I became the, along with Mark Kalin, the first junior member of the Magic Castle. So uh, that was kind of all where it started. And I was surrounded by uh, a lot of good magicians. And when you have Michael Weber and Amando Lucero, uh, you don't need to do sleight of hand. You don't, there's no need. And you're too young to do mentalism. So I kind of gravitated towards the comedy magic. And I also learned how to do all the sideshow stuff. From there was a wonderful guy named Ralph Maccabee, who was best known for the Maccabee rings, which is intimate close-up uh, uh, linking rings, bracelets that uh, he he developed. And I have the original set. Yeah, he had a couple of sets, and and um, I have uh, I have one of them. And um, he taught me how to eat fire and how to hammer a nail into my nose, and thus the downward spiral began. Uh, I did kind of comedy magic. I really didn't do the sideshow stuff, but in what is kind of relevant to our conversation here, uh, I was very much involved with theater and figured that, you know, the old quote, the old idea, I won't say quote because it's not the, I can't actually quote the quote, but the idea that a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician kind of resonates. So I thought I'd get better training as an actor. Uh, graduated uh, from college, Long Beach City, Long Beach State, with a, a theater degree, great useless degree. Uh, and the theater department at Cal State Long Beach was really um, about getting drunk and the old has-beens and never were that taught there screwing the uh, students in more ways than one, yeah. uh, which was fine. I mean, it was a fine way to pass time, but it really wasn't about theater. So when I got out, I realized I needed more training, so I went up to San Francisco and uh, attended the American Conservatory Theater. Great training opportunity, because what they do in their studios on one side of Geary Street, they put in a practice on the other side of the Geary Theater, 
and do every night in their full season. And the instructors that were teaching were the ones that were acting and directing across the street. So it was very practical. There was also a lot of politics there. Uh, and but it was it was still it was still pretty great. And from that came a quote I think is will be very important for magicians to understand. There's an idea of losing yourself in a role, and that is completely wrong. That's 180 from what it actually is. It's about finding yourself to be in the role. This is the quote that I saw. Remember, it was um, act with a warm heart and a cool mind. Yeah. Well, the the thing about it is that if you want to learn how to play, you want to play Hamlet. You don't look upon it as something that you have to mold yourself into. You have to use your imagination. That what if you were a royalty? What if your father had just died by sudden and rather mysterious causes? And what if, as you're dealing with this trauma in your life, your mother suddenly marries your uncle? And what if you see an apparition of your father? And says, "I was murdered by your uncle." If you can answer those what ifs, and these all come from Stanislavski and yeah. the Moscow Art Theater, if you can answer those, what they mean to you, if you were in that situation, you can then begin to play Hamlet. It's not about the words and the movement and the text. It's about understanding that. And then bringing yourself to the words and the movement and everything else. So it's the same thing for for magic. Uh, too many magicians. You know, I, I jokingly was sitting here before we started, and I, I took a, 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 a napkin and rolled it up, paper napkin, and did paper rolls over the head for myself, and was amazed. And I think that that's goes with too many magicians that there's more self-deception of magic than there is deception. And what really is going on here? What what really is being done? Whether it's close up or on stage, uh, magicians often aren't honest with that. And I think it's important to understand who you are, what you're doing, and why you're doing it, and then convey that to an audience. And if you can do that, and that's simple, but that's not easy. Simple is rarely easy. If you can do that, then you'll be successful as a performing artist, as and everything that goes be underneath that, which is being an entertainer. Um, I, that's that's it. Thank you. Good night. Did you? Um, that's my next question. I wrote a bunch of stuff down yesterday. I had a lot of time yesterday. When you're performing, I mean, are, are you a character or is it just Todd Roberts? It's it's an amplification, not an exaggeration, an amplification of who I am. It's various aspects of who I am. So when I'm doing the sideshow stuff, I'm depending upon the venue in which I'm doing it. Sometimes I'm just doing straight performance because that's appropriate. Other times I can stretch out and put some context into it and give people uh, a, a few things that I think are important about what I do. And things that have excited my imagination about the history and where this all came from, and my own personal journey through all this stuff. The um, same thing with magic. I mean, when we did wrote play dead, uh, it started as a, a seance show, and it the idea was that I wanted to do a show about spiritualistic fraud. Oh, that's redundant, and. The problem with it that I discovered, and you don't know these things until you do it, and that's the other thing is, you can work, and you can rehearse, you can practice, and you can rehearse all you want, but until you bloody it in front of the public, which is a phrase from a musician friend of mine when he was working on a new piece of music, he'd say, "I got to bloody it in front of the public." Uh, until you get it out there, you don't you don't know what it is, because performance, unlike traditional theater is a dialogue, not between two characters on stage or the fourth wall and the audience is a passive a participant, but it is a direct dialogue with the audience as the other half. Now, they might not have a speaking role in this, but who they are and how they react to what you're doing and how they take it in uh, is 
vital importance to your performance. And understanding that is something that magicians often don't do. It's like, this is something that I think is cool, and you put it up on stage, and it's eye candy for the audience, and it really doesn't engage them on any level. Um, so what? So back to my point, if I had one, um, was that it's important to kind of add in who you are and why you're doing what you're doing and make that as clear as possible to, to the audience. I mean, last night I did a gig and it was just a, a corporate gig and it really wasn't about anything more than just being a distraction. And it was inherently trivial and if you know that going in, you go, okay, fine. And it's, I've got these little rubber bunnies and this bunch of bunnies and it's getting one's a mom and one's a pop and you take the bite, you know, and they screamed and they screamed and they were happy and it was like, okay, and now, and then I got up and the real gig was to warm up the room a little bit as people were, were you know, having their, their dinner and then introduce the Dueling Piano Show. And that's it. That Entertainment for entertainment's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, get, getting back to uh, Play Dead, which is what we're talking about, that I wrote this show that I wanted to do about spiritualistic fraud. And what I discovered was that when I presented it and there was a prologue to it, that said, it's always been fake, it always will be fake, and today will be no different from what you're going to see here. That's a, it was longer than that, but and I gave history and the whole thing. That by setting it up that way and being honest with the audience, that every time thereafter, when I there was a dividing line, uh, and, and to be very pretentious, I would say, if, if you know Shakespeare, Henry V starts off with a wonderful prologue, this is O for a Muse of Fire, that will send the brightest heavens of invention, meaning... Oh, I wish we could do this, what you're going to see for real, but we can't. So therefore, use your imagination that when we say, when we talk of horses, you see them printing their proud boots in the receiving earth, that you see horses. We don't have horses. And when we talk about the, the big armies, we're going to have three guys up here, okay? And that's the army, okay? You got it? You got it? Okay, you got the idea? You got the game game rules? Okay, uh, game on. And then the show starts. And it's, so I did something similar with this, and I said all about spiritualistic fraud. And I said, you know, it's it's very possible the people who see on TV today do talk to the dead. It's just that the dead don't talk back to them. However, a seance can be a very powerful experience if you look at it through the eyes of a believer. And that's what I need you to do. If you engage this on a very cynical level, it all falls apart. If you reach out in the dark, it all dissolves. If you shine the bright light of doubt upon uh, all this, it's very apparent what you're seeing. However, we can have some fun here if you will just believe for the next hour. And if you'll play your role, I'll play my role, the medium. So all those in favor, fine. Anyone dissenting? All right, great. And we now begin. And from there on in, I played the role of a spiritualist medium. Uh, and it was fine, except it made the whole experience a burlesque. Well, I'm, I kind of have a question. I mean, sure. Well, this is just a big conversation. So, it, why did you set it up that way? I mean, because, because, I mean, if you go into the theater and, and the audience is sitting there, there should be that moment of belief where they get sucked in. So, I mean, why, why did you want to make it the show? I wanted to make it very clear what they were, were getting because there is an area of magic that wallows in the gray world of enigmatic uh, qualities and, and mentalism. <laughs> because when you take a sort of picture and put it in your hand and show your hands empty, no one really believes that it dematerialized out of your hand. They know it's a trick. If you do it with some sort of flair, it can transcend that trick quality and be kind of fun. But when you look at someone and say, you're thinking of the number 37, and they go, how the Fagawi did you do that? At some level, they've got to wonder if it has any power. They've got to at least wonder if what they're possibly seeing is real. They might not accept that it's real, but they've got to wonder. And 
so many mentalists, and, and here and now, this is where we're going to piss people off, um, are not good performers. And that actually works in their favor. Because people, whether they consciously think this or not, go, well, he couldn't deceive me, so he's just a bland guy. So how is he able to do that? The, the more slick performer, the more confident, uh, the smoother the performer, the harder it is to pull up mentalism. And because people, oh, it's, it's, oh that's got to be a trick. Because he, he seems, he seems unlike me. So the, the close-up guys that have all of a sudden now are doing stage mentalism don't have the chops to be stage performers. But they can do these things that people go, wow, he's just like me and he's doing this. I don't quite understand that. So I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to confuse people. So therefore, I wanted to do this. And as it turned out, it turned it into something that I didn't intend. I thought people could really get into it and have a, a, a truly engaging experience and suspend their disbelief. Mm -hmm. um, because there is a difference between disbelief and belief. And I didn't want to go for belief at all on any level. But the problem was when I'm saying, and now we will take the next step in our process here, and we must make certain that we're on the firm footing of science. And it, people would laugh people would laugh and it was a lark and entertaining on a certain level but people came to be scared and and feel unworldly that they were experiencing some unworldly and many people left un, unsatisfied because of that as long as you got the rea reaction i mean yeah but were you looking for that reaction or you know i was looking for them to understand what it is to go to a really good seance when you read about Eusebio Palladino and people in the room there and the table floating around, or you see Marjorie and there are things happening and, and amazing phenomenon happening and people are, are getting wigged out about it. That's what I wanted to go for, but I didn't want them to know it was, think it was anything other than what it was. But the problem is you can't have, you can't have your Kate and Edith too. I mean, could, couldn't you um, put it at the end? You could, but then, then it's like, aha, I gotcha, prank, ha ha. And so it's unsatisfying that way. So I, it, it, it needed to be more embedded into the performance, inherent in the performance, without being overtly stated, without any didactic statement of what we were doing. And that's what Play Dead became. Because when Teller and I got together, like I say, I'd done the show, I'd expanded upon it, and had kind of a, a, try to stay very Catholic to the actual techniques that, that spiritual mediums use. It was time at that point, having sort of exhausted that, to break everything open. And Teller said, let's take and put a blank page in front of us. Take everything you've done, and take everything that I've done with pen and on my own, let's take all of our knowledge, put it out here. It's a big page. And put it all off the side and start with a blank page and say, okay. what would we like to do and like a shopping cart and we'll take a little bit of here from a little bit of there and we started playing with imagery and we wanted to include a bunch of isms so we had spiritualism we had um, spook shows we had ghost stories we had all sorts of things true crime and we'd be sitting in Teller's uh, uh, place, or if he was here in New York, we would we'd go, kind of go back and forth. He'd be here for corporate or whatever, and we'd spend a day or two, and then I'd go out to Vegas for a week or so. And we started just playing with images and ideas, not thinking about tricks, because that's the other thing. If you really want to be pure, if you want to be on the level of the greats, you come up with an idea and figure out later on how to do it. You don't take things off the shelf that it kind of excited, excited your imagination and think, seem kind of cool and then figure out a presentation. That is basically taking a, a, a garment off the shelf and putting it on, hoping it fits, as opposed to a bespoken tailored suit which is the most wonderful thing when you have 
you know, a an old Jewish man putting his hands on you repeatedly to make sure that the garment is truly a yours. To the left. A little left, yes. Um, so the the end result is we got talking about things, and every once in a while I tell a story, and I'd say, you know, I, I used to throw parties in the Long Beach Municipal Cemetery when I was in high school, and tell her would say. Really, tell me about that. It was almost like therapy. And I'd say, yeah, on Friday nights when the moon was full, I used to gather friends and often develop friends of friends. And we, I discovered that the, the, the gates were unlocked. And we would go in there and gather around the, the Hartwell family uh, mausoleum in a circle. And, and I would go on and I'd tell a story. And tell go, great, write that up. It's in the show. Okay. So I'd write it up. And he said, that's perfect. That's perfect. Let me rewrite it. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of, that's perfect. Just write it exactly like that. It's got to be exactly that. And then go, all right, let me rewrite it. Yeah. Is there anything that you do, um, I, I kind of call it like the moment of Zen when I used to perform. Is there anything that you do before, like, it, it could be any show, a theater show, your regular entertainment show, your side show, anything you do right before you go on stage to kind of get in the zone? Is there anything? Um, I will sometimes just because I've been doing some of the things like the sideshow stuff thousands of times. I, I may have eaten somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 light bulbs. So, and, and it's very funny because I did a routine out in Coney Island when I first started doing it out there. And, uh, and even before when I was doing colleges and for some reason I didn't really, the routine wasn't quite right. So I threw it out and I rewrote the whole thing. And it's what I do now. And I don't even remember that original routine. Every once in a while, I was like, oh, why is this? Oh, but I don't really remember like previous versions of things because everything adapted because I would pay attention to what I'm doing. And, and, and uh, so before I go on, I just kind of run down the important things, especially if I'm emceeing like names, because I'll get out there and, and get rolling and I'll have things I'm going to do. And sometimes I get so involved and I go, and now the next performer, what, what is his name? What is his name? You're mostly thinking of the show right yeah, before you walk out. Yeah, yeah, just kind of running down a little laundry list of what I'm going to do. This is um, Jason Wellington is helping me write the book. He couldn't make it out, but one of his favorite questions is uh, happy accidents is what he likes to call it. Have you ever had anything where you're on stage and something went wrong or the audience gave you something? Oh, yeah. With, like, <laughs> how much has that gone into a show or... Well, there's, you write it down like yeah. that was great. Yeah, I, I, I used to, um, whenever I'm, and I still do this, I, uh, when I'm developing things, I will keep a notebook of, um, and I should video, uh, but I'm the laziest man in show business and the king of procrastination. And you know what they say about procrastination? I'll tell you later. <laughs> and, you know, actually, I, I, I'm so good at it that... Um, and I'm just kind of honored. I got the, the letter two weeks ago that I've been named the Procrastination Society of America's Man of the Year for 1997. And they were going to give me the award during National Procrastination Week, <laughs> but it's been postponed. Hey, okay, there you go. So, you know, this is Sunday morning. We're doing this on a Sunday morning. I'm doing this all the same material on a freaking Sunday morning. Anyway, um, so... Yeah, there's been a number of things. I was doing, uh, in the um, late 80s, I was doing a college. I'm doing the sideshow act. And when doing the sideshow stuff, the, the, the shock value is there. You don't have to play it up. Ooh, I'm hammering a nail in my nose. It's so gross. No. I want to do the opposite. thing I learned from the old timers like Melvin Burkhart was you got to take the stink off of it. You've got to give them more than just this, because if you don't, they're going to want you to stop because there's a saturation level. So I learned that if I add in jokes and I, and I, it's not that I don't take this seriously, but I lighten the, the mood. And if I can make them laugh, I've got them. And I'm doing the show and I'm thinking it's not going well. I'm, I'm tanking. I'm doing the lines and it's just crickets. And they're reacting to, the visceral elements of it, but they're not getting the jokes. And about two thirds the way through, I did a line, and I don't remember what the line was. And they were sitting there, and a the guy was looking at me, and I turned to him and I said, It's just like comedy. 
And it actually got a laugh. And I'm like, oh, no. And I started thinking about it, like, oh, so you can, I could do a bad joke. I could do a pun and then follow that up. And it's become sort of a catchphrase for when I do that style of, of performance. Mm. Um, uh, and it, it works really well. And he's been ripped off by a couple of people. So uh, must be doing something right. Um, I, I read that you're a musician. Yeah. How is it being a musician? Has that helped you in your as far as your creativity with magic? Not really. It's it's a whole separate thing. Uh, the worst part about it is everyone goes, "Oh, you should put the magic and music together." And I go, "Okay, how?" I I don't know. But you should be like playing piano and then have magic happen. Okay, I've got two hands on the on the piano. What uh, foot juggling? What I I don't know. Card tricks with you know. It's hard to do a pass with your feet. Uh, I'm sure it can be done. Uh, but, did, did, you, did you approach your magic the same as you would approach music? Um, kind of, kind of. Uh, the music I like is kind of arcane uh, ragtime, and it's not kind of good, happy ragtime, but it's like, okay, this was played in whorehouses. This was, this was uh, pre-fornication music and had a real form and function and was played in some really dicey places for some really nasty people. And if it entertained them, why? And I just find that as a cultural phenomenon kind of interesting. Just as when I'm dealing with all the other things, especially if I'm doing anything that has historical, whether it's con artistry or sideshow or seance, I'm like, why did this have a function? And how can I convey that to a modern audience that it doesn't have that same function? So, so in that way, it, it's kind of kind of similar. Trying to get people to react to it and appreciate it on the level that I I I, I do and and what I want them to take away from the whole thing. That's great. Yeah. I'll say that right then. So anyway, I just want to get back to the, the process because people might find it interesting about yeah, it. Yeah. So we, I would start telling stories, and there's a number of them that are in the in the show, and. We'd also come up with images, and this is my favorite story about the creation of Play Dead. Was we got talking about Marjorie, the Boston medium, Mina Crandon, and again talking about what we just just mentioned. She brought sex into the séance parlor. Uh, she was an oven era, early jazz age, uh, and the the idea of a flapper. Uh, was coming into vogue, where a woman who was, if not sexually aggressive, was sexually overt. Because up until that time, it was men, and they had their wives and mistresses, and that's that was a dynamic. If they had enough money, you could afford a wife and a mistress. And women were real second class and weren't driving things. All of a sudden, you know, women couldn't go into saloons. They would have to go through and go into the back room, the, the dining room, and it, they couldn't. There was a bastion of, of uh, male activity. But when prohibition came in, speakeasies were men and women. And that's why we, by the way, that's why we have bar stools. Because up until prohibition, a little, little bit of trivia, men stood at bars. You sat at tables and you stood at bars and you'd have your drink and you'd stand there. That's why there was the brass rail. So you could relax your, your back a little bit and have something to sort of lean on. And then when women started coming in, there wasn't appealing. They wanted to sit down. So the idea of a bar stool came in. Ha ha ha. Aren't you glad it came today? So, so uh, anyway, it changed the, the social dynamic. And she was part of that. And up until this point, it was a very Victorian phenomenon, for lack of a better term. And that's why she was so successful, is that she had these stodgy men that she would rub up against in the dark, who would recoil, lose control, and all of a sudden the bell rings. And they would be asked, are you in control? And they would be so embarrassed, they wouldn't. They'd say, oh, yes, yes, I was in complete control. No, they weren't. But they were so embarrassed at... at being put off by a, a, a woman that uh, uh, they would lie. Or there's a great story about a young guy, 19 years old, who was at a seance late in Marjorie's career, sitting on her left side, 
in control, holding her wrist. Lights went out, and she took her, his hand and shoved up her vagina. And as he said, at that point, I'd basically do anything for her. So when people said, were you in, were you in contact with her? Yes, I was. The whole thing. And she had a hand free to do whatever she needed. Yeah. So Talk about sacrifice for your art. Exactly. Exactly. She was a true artiste. Uh, so she changed the whole dynamic. And so we wanted to do something about it. And the fact is that she did do seances in the nude. She would wear her kimono and writhe around and it would come off. Uh, and so we were like, okay, let's do something about that. And Teller was, so what if we had a table up on stage and brought up, I'm doing my Teller impersonation. I have to, like, you have to twirl, twirl my hair. He does that. What, what if, what if we had a table and brought up people from the audience to sit like a committee and we had a beautiful woman come out in a kimono and she strips it off and she's completely naked. She climbs up on the table, is tied spread eagle on the table as she's lying there. You put her into trance and then reach into her vagina and birth a ghoul out of it. I said, it works for me. How do we do it? He says, I have no idea. Let's call Johnny Thompson. <laughs> Hi, Johnny, it's Teller. I'm here with Todd, and... Uh, I thought Johnny was born, actually. What was that? Is that, that Johnny that, was born? That, there are rumors. <laughs> there are rumors. He, he jumped from the thigh of Zeus, you know. Um, so he's like, hi, I'm, I'm here with tell, uh, Todd, and we're working on the show, and we have this thing. Um, committee, sitting around the table, naked girl, spread eagle, reaching the vagina, birth a ghoul. And there's silence. And then... After a few seconds, you hear Johnny go, well, there's five ways you can do that. And I said, we have a show. We have a show. If he's not going to blink, and it comes in with five ways of doing it. Now, we ended up not doing that, but we did something similar to it. We did use the a kindred image. Um, and it ended up being in the show that I bring up someone from the audience and, and slash open their, get, their gut and reach in and birth a naked girl out of their... They're bleeding gut, which is, you know, that's entertainment. Uh, so, but that's where it started. So it was things like that, that we just wanted imagery. And then we tried to figure out how it all tied together. And, and we found a flow to the whole thing. And that's what that's how Play Dead came about. And we did it off Broadway, did well. We did it out of the Geffen Playhouse, did well. And now it's... Supposedly in 2016, opening up in, in in Las Vegas, yeah. So, Definitely go see that. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the venue is in flux right now. We were supposed to open in March because they had a venue, but then uh, a club owner came in and wanted to buy it and make it into a nightclub. It was offering a lot more money than for a theater show. So that's out. There's another venue, but the producer a little hinky about taking over something that's an untried venue. And it's basically a space in one of the casinos that would be made into a theater specifically for the show. So they're they're kind of playing slate to work. Yeah, it's which is great. Yeah. Uh, but they're not quite sure they want to do that, and so it's very possible it might not be Vegas; it might be somewhere else. But we'll see. But the question, because you, when you're talking about play dead, this one works. Is like play dead seems to push the boundary here yeah. in certain things, especially the ideas that you come up with. Um, it's a unique style. Let me think. Thought provoking. Right? How long did it take for you to find your style, your niche, to, to get to where your your thought process is for magic? But was it early on, or was it just? Like, how did you find the time? Well, it's 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 always um, it's ongoing. It, it basically it, it boils down to finding things I like, uh, identifying why I like them and identifying why they're important and then trying to convey that to an audience. And if you do that, it gives them a reason to watch because the thing about it is, think about performance, think about anything, think about what we're doing right now is that regardless of what your spirituality is, 
and what you think when you die, what happens next. Whether you think that's the end, or you go on to this grand and glorious glory. It's a repetitive redundancy. And um, you go off to this, this gr great reward, or anything in between. Life is finite. We have so much time. We don't know how much, but it's finite. And therefore, it is the greatest currency in the world. It is the greatest value, time. And as a performer, it's important that you make the audience feel that not only was it worth their investment of time that they spent there paying attention to, but ideally, it was the best way they could possibly have spent that time in their life at that moment. And that really, where that came from was working on Coney Island. Because there's so much uh, distraction, so many distractions. There's so much grabbing at your attention. Now, when I was standing on the, on the ballet stage out front, literally talking people into coming in and buying a ticket and seeing the show, I had to instill in their mind that this was the best way they could spend their time, regardless of what the admission price was that coming in here was more valuable than the carousel across the way there or the, the Himalaya ride bumping uh, gangster rap music down the way or the games guys who were trying to con them or that big ass Ferris wheel or that roller coaster over there or any of the other rides. I had to say, come spend time here. And that's when I realized that that's really what it was all about, it, it sort of changed everything. That it's really about the experience and making time matter. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, that's, that's, that's all there is to it, I mean. And, if, and so that's you know, what we're doing today, hopefully, that this little experience here is what you needed it to be. It's what I wanted to do. And there are a number of things you could have been doing right now. I don't know if you wanted to do it. I yeah. threatened I threatened Todd to come out. Yeah, well, there, you know, there is that porn out there that yeah. uh, you've got. To, but it was um, a lot of research. To yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's. Uh, it, it sounds like something kind of fun, and I. I think it's important that, that you, you can't stop thinking about what you do and why you do it. Because when you do, all of a sudden, you, you start to become a kind of a caricature of yourself. Uh, and there have been... It, it's interesting talking about... And this is my, my view of it. And I don't know what this has to do with anything. But this is my, my impression. David Copperfield came along at a time when magic was having a resurgence thanks to Doug Henning more than anything else because you had the traditionalists out there you had Harry Blackstone Jr. and you had Mark Wilson who were the two prominent figures that were seen on uh, as magicians a number of other people out there of course but those were kind of prominent but they were very much a throwback to the tuxedoed big box guys girl comes gets cut up climbs out and Everyone's it's like happy. Classical style, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Doug Henning came along and had a whole different take on it because it was inherently Doug. His whole sense of the, you know life is a wonderful thing, and I'm the great thing about Doug Henning was that you did. A, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Doug couldn't pull off the all-powerful wizard, but he could pull off the guide to a world of wonder that he had experienced something glorious. And this was who he was. I mean, there was with the whole TM fascination that he had. Uh, and fascination is kind of demeaning. I mean, the fascination is, uh, the TM is part of his life, tied in very similar to the way he looked upon magic. And he had content in his, what he was doing, and, and a message that, that resonated with himself and, and hopefully with his audience, and it seemed to do so. Uh, and then Copperfield came along and took that same idea, but brought it back into a sort of a neoclassic idea. And let's, let's bring a little romance, and let's add a little more power into it. 
Uh, and those early pieces where he would dance and to Sinatra music, and they were they were great. They were they were a very hip updating of the masculine event magical sketches that were exactly, done yeah. at you know Egyptian Hall that were sort of about something. And it was also the time the music videos were coming in. They often had a little narrative to the songs. And so he, he worked in the popular culture very well. And then he adapted and changed as he started to get older. And the, the big mega tricks to anchor the, the uh, uh, specials, the things that everyone was talking about. And all was well and good. And, and it was through the second or even third version of Copperfield as he evolved and then Blaine came along and changed everything again and I don't think David has ever recovered from that he seemed to all of a sudden try to embrace Blaine and even today coming out with a t-shirt and a, a denim shirt and jeans very Bruce Springsteen that's yeah I don't I don't that, that, that's that's not like that, that's not my cop feel, and you know he, he's very successful and he is who he is and all that. Yeah, I can't take that away from him. I don't want to, uh, and yet it, it it seems to stop. So I mean, talking about Copperfield, so he he had that character that was David Copperfield, mm-hmm. and he changed. Do do you feel that? Once you you find that character, you should just stick with it. No, 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 because you're not you're you're changing. You're growing older. Your worldview is changing. So why shouldn't that evolve? You know, um, at some point, because it was becoming a joke, Paul Daniels took off the the toupee and said, "This is who I am," and that's when you're honest especially when your your job is to deceive people. There's nothing more deceptive than honesty. Uh, and when you do something like that, all of a sudden, people will embrace you on a whole different level. And because another one of my little sayings that came across upon a long time ago, which is a magician is only as deceptive as their hairpiece. <laughs> no good. Because you don't want any disconnects. It was a thing that I learned early on that they said, okay, kids, don't start off your patter that you've gotten out of Tarbell saying, as I was traveling through India, I discovered this, this fakir on the streets of Kashmir, who was doing... No, you're 10 years old, okay? You've not been traveling through India. You can't pull that off. You can't pull it off. And and it's a disconnect. If And when the people... That's the thing that's important, is you can't... Let, you have to keep people engaged. That if at any moment they have a thought that is not what you want them to think, they pull back, and then you've got to engage them and bring them in again. And that's the real challenge. And that's the thing that we worked very hard at, at Play Dead to keep them moving forward in this thing. How much how much rehearsal time? I mean, Play Dead, did you, did you bring in audiences to do test runs yeah. to see what was yeah. working, what wasn't? Yeah, we spent a lot of time working uh, on the script. And then we did a workshop of the tricks because they were all new. Mm-hmm. Though they're based upon principles that had been used before, the tricks themselves had never been done. So we did rough versions of the tricks in a little 40-minute workshop for an invited audience at the Rio in, in a little room there. And then once we understood and refined those, um, and some things were discarded and some things you know, were improved. When you're discarding things, was it kind of like a three strikes you're out? Or, I mean, did you try something and prove it and it still didn't get what you were yeah. looking for? Yeah. The reaction? Yeah. There were, there were things like, well, you know, there was, uh, we, we, we played with the opening of the show in which went to black and you saw a work light uh, like 15 feet above the stage. 
and it's turned and you realize I'm holding it and floated down and walked forward to the audience. That's cool. With it. Yeah, it was cool, but it was a pain in the ass to do. And it, it like, was it like a work light or was it like a like a ghost lamp? It, it, no, it was. It was actually it was a, a yeah. It, no, it was like a you know a, a trouble light, a, oh, okay. a, a motive, you know thing. And then we liked the idea of the light bulb, so we made it into the ghost light. And uh, fortunately, I could I just walk out on stage these days. I don't have to float down because it was dangerous. There, it, it, and, and I know I was you know no it was. You know, I'm 15 feet above the stage, sitting on a on a bicycle seat with no other support, and I was willing to do it. And tell her, went, "No, you're not going to do that. No." And there was this. It was. It wasn't as we worked on and worked on and we we're trying to get it smooth, so it just looked like I was floating down and walking forward, and it was never quite right. And it was, a, and because it wasn't seamless, because there was just a moment like, "What is that?" That, yeah, yeah, you got got rid of it. It was it was kind of cool. Um, and then we worked on, you know, another idea, which was that, uh, that light starts up high and then comes down and you see me realize I'm sitting at the edge of the stage and it comes down to me and I, I pick the light and I'm there just illuminated by the light. That was kind of fun too, but it still, it just, it wasn't as pure, it wasn't as simple. Um, so we end up doing what we're, we're doing. So there, that was kind of an example of, of something that was, was tried. Uh, and, you know, was, everything was adapted from there. We then took and put them into the script, took over a small room at the, the Clarion, which is no longer, uh, and did a rough version of the full show with just their lights and our sound designer came in that we were going to use with bare lights, minimal set and did the show. And we discovered a couple of major things there. Uh, and we discarded one trick that cost $20,000 to build. It wasn't right. Just didn't, wasn't right for the show or just didn't work? It worked beautifully, but it wasn't right for the show. Okay, it so was, you, well, at least you still have a $20,000. Oh, it was gorgeous. Back, so. it, was, it was very possibly the most gorgeous Pepper's Ghost you've ever seen. You've never seen Pepper's Ghost. You never see that anymore. Yeah. Uh, go to Disney. Yeah. <laughs> That's and, and it was problematic. And it took too long. And it was gorgeous. And we cut it. And somewhere there's a $20,000 prop sitting in the desert in Las Vegas uh, that we couldn't use. So, And it, it, it was so tailored. Longitude and latitude yes. will be hidden in the it, book somewhere. Exactly. So uh, look for those hidden gems. Yeah. And uh, and it was the kind of thing that, that you couldn't, it wasn't a standalone. It was created specifically for a moment in the show, and it wouldn't work anywhere else for any other purpose. Uh, so anyway, we, we, um, we changed up a major, major moment in the show because just, that just wasn't working. And the other thing was we did, we knew that, that readings, talking to the dead was a powerful, powerful thing for the participants. We needed to address that. Neither Teller nor I knew exactly how powerful it was until we just did a simple message reveal in the show. And I brought up a guy from the audience. It was the second performance. And I brought up a guy from the audience and took ashes of Eusebio Palladino and poured it out on a large piece of muslin and we shook it and it made a message that said, uh, Juan, Justine is here with me. You say it was in Italian. Juan, um, EP. And I'm looking at this and saying, oh, Justin, Justine, excuse me. Justine is here with me, EP. And I look up at the guy, he's about 60 years old, and he's shaking. And his eyes are all red and he's crying. And I say, Justine, 
My mother, my mother, my mother drops to his knees, sobbing uncontrollably. Having worked out in Coney Island, when you do the sideshow, and this is, I think, applies for anyone who performs on a regular basis. No matter how good a show goes, you got another one coming up. In Coney Island, it's like, yeah, coming another show coming up in 45 minutes. No matter how bad a show goes, you got another show coming up. So you don't, you don't indulge in the good feeling of how great a show is, and you don't beat yourself for how bad a show can go. You stay in the moment, you do it. You build the house brick by brick, each and every performance. So when this happened, I didn't panic. Instead, I just upset, uh, 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 assessed and obsessed, assessed the uh, situation and had to deal with it. So show be damned, because I had someone here that I had done something very bad to. So I threw the trick away and went to the guy and picked him up. His name was Juan. And I said, I am very sorry for what I just did. Did not mean to cause you sorrow. When death rips someone from our lives, leaves a wound that never heals, we think we can move on from it. But we can't. And we don't realize that. But there are people out there who are more than willing to take advantage of this loss. And that's why we do this, to make this very clear. There is no intention of causing you pain. And I'm sorry it's gone this far. I deeply, deeply apologize to you because what I just did was wrong. I hope you understand. And I'm, I'm not talking and I'm talking to him. And he pulled himself around. He shook his head. He hugged me and he thanked me. And I, I wanted to walk off stage and throw up because I, I felt so, such a, so ashamed. The people applauded. He went back. He was fine. I got through the, the performance. The irony of it is a magician that was in the audience came up and went, that was a great show. But listen, the stooge that you bring up for the message, pull him back because he just wasn't believable. I said, that wasn't the stooge. That was real. But the guy went, oh, fuck. Yes. Oh, fuck. Yes. That's an appropriate response. And Teller and I spent about three hours talking after that. And I said, I realized it was powerful. I didn't realize it was nuclear. That just by showing the man the name of his dead mother would cause him an emotional breakdown on stage. Now we find out a little bit more about the story afterwards because Juan actually came back a couple of times and he sent friends and relatives to see the show because we put his story in the show. And his mother had died a number of years ago in Spain, and he didn't get a chance to go back to the funeral. And to him, because he never really saw the spectacle of death associated with her, she was still kind of alive to him. And when I brought forth that name, it hit him that she was truly dead. And it had been about six years and bam, it was as fresh, fresher than when he got the call that his mother had died. And that infused and informed the rest of the show as we went darker. So we start off with fun death, and then we get to the real side of it and what can be done and what it really means. And then have fun at the end. And that, that roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you, and if you want to have weight, you got you got to address these things. 
And for some people, they, they get a little pissed off when we go in that direction because I do readings and I do it very Brechtian. You know, we're back to theater again. Bertolt Brecht was, was very lead in the didactic theater, that it is an idea. Well, there you go. So the idea is that, you know, when like Galileo, you have these scenes and then all of a sudden the choir, choir comes in and sings and like, this is what you want to take away from this. This is what this is why we do this, okay? We did a similar thing with the readings. I would talk about fraud and then get people emotionally involved on a level where they forget it's fraud and then bring them right. back into it. Say, I can see that you're tearing up even though you know this is being done in a place where everything's fake. Please forgive me. Uh, and it was a whole, it was a change-up. I mean, it wasn't entertainment any longer. All of a sudden, we're now we're doing theater. We're doing really real theater. We're doing real, maybe not even theater, but kind of almost agitprop performance. Yeah, giving them a real experience. Yeah, and with a real point of view. Uh, and then I bring a guy up and cut him open and birth a naked girl. So, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, <laughs> so it, it works, um, but, but yeah. So they, it was that moment, and and we did that and rewrote the whole thing. Then we did the actual previews out in Las Las Vegas because Teller was working with Penn and couldn't come in for a full preview session in New York. So in a space at the Rio, we replicated the size of the theater, the layout of the theater, the stage and everything that we were going to be going into in New York, brought the cast out, brought all the designers out, all the tech people out, and did the show in Vegas. Then brought in a friend of mine who's a director to be the associate director that when Teller wasn't there, he would oversee and make sure everything was falling into place because I couldn't be in two places at once. Uh, and we then moved to New York and Teller came in for about the last week or so and made sure everything was, you know, uh, what he wanted it to be, what it should be. And we opened and it was, it was fine. But our problem was that we opened at about the same time as Sleep No More. And we had a nice little show and they had a $5 million environmental friggin' hotel that they built. Yeah. And that excited the imagination of the public and the critics, and so we kind of got lost. But the people that saw the show, it, it was an interesting dynamic in that people that saw the show... How big was the audience? I mean, it was about uh, 240 seats. That's great. That's a yeah. great intimate space. Yes. And we... Um, people that saw the show loved it, uh, but getting people to come and see the show was difficult because people here, it's it's scary and they wouldn't want to see it they're looking for <laughs> no they just they were too afraid they were really? just too afraid oh it's scary I, I, I don't like it no 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 we had one guy who saw the show a dozen times easily and he would say to his friends hey this is a great show I know you and you'll love this show it's called Play Day oh I heard about that it's scary yeah it is but it's fun it's really fun it's fun in the dark it's really fun I don't want to see it no I'll tell you what I'm, I'm going to go see it. I'm going to buy tickets for us. I'll, I'll drive you in. We'll have dinner and see the show. No. Okay. I'm going to drive you in. I'll pick you up. at. I will pay for the tickets. I will feed you dinner. And we'll go see the show that I know you will like. You will not like. You will love it. No. When you get someone saying to someone, here's the whole experience, and they won't go, you know, you've done something very right and something very wrong. We had the same kind of thing with, with Carnival Knowledge, the, the other show that I did earlier, which was about the side show. People hear it's about a guy eating glass and hammering a nail into his nose, and they didn't want to see it. When they did come and see it, uh, they'd say, oh, it's about Americana, and this guy's really engaging, and it's a lot of fun. And it was the, you know, I want to see it again. And we had people seeing it multiple times. But what happens is the, the, the way marketing is done is that there's a lot of barter. Mm -hmm. So the marketing people will say, well, you know, the the Long Island City News, the weekly paper that's in Long Island City, um, 
you can get a full page ad for a thousand dollars or two hundred fifty bucks uh, and five hundred dollars in tickets. So you give them tickets that the Long Island City Gazette or whatever it is then gives as gifts to the people who are advertised, the little local market or the yeah. bar. And so these people get tickets, they don't even know what the hell the show is. And they come. And time and time again, I've heard from when we do Carnival Lodge, if I'd heard of what the show was about, I wouldn't have come, but I got these tickets, I didn't know what I was seeing, I loved it, I'm coming back. It's a really weird left-handed compliment. Yeah, that's like, but I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but it was a very similar experience in that people thought it was, it was too scary. So when we did the Geffen, we played up, even in the design element, we, we used like an old sign from an amusement park ride that was Laugh in the Dark. And that was the theme, Laugh in the Dark, Spooky Amusement. Played up those elements because as soon as you start going dark and scary, you've lost it. Now, what's interesting is that now that I've done the TV series and we're going to be doing a second season of True Nightmares, thank you, it, I'm reaching a, a wider audience somewhat that will start to understand who I am and hopefully will come to it because they don't quite know what it is, but we like this guy and he has kind of a dark sensibility, but he kind of does it in an amusing way. He's got a quirky yeah. sense to it. Yeah. And you get a new following and yeah. brand and... Uh, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see when this next production happens, because it'll probably happen about the same time that the show is premiering. Nice, yeah. Uh, I'll definitely come out to Vegas to see that. Yeah, or they're talking San Francisco, which I would like very much. I, I you know, like I say, lived in San Francisco, and I, I sorry that I ever left. Uh, I, I'm not sorry I ever left. Like I'm supposed to go out there. I know I have um, some interviews out there. We have like Steve Spill, and yeah. I think Tom Frank is going to want to do it. Just want to make sure quick. Um, yeah, so it's you know, there's there's a bunch of good folks out there. So. Yeah, we, it, it's interesting because you, know, you touched on so much, and it's we have so much material from so many different people, yeah. and it's interesting how they all coincide, mm-hmm. like opposite sides of the spectrum, all kind of saying the same thing but yeah. in their own unique way. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah it's um, the magic is. And its purest form is a form of theater that creates the illusion of extraordinary ability and an alternate reality. And in doing so, it makes us feel that anything is possible and nothing is impossible. That's a very strong, lovely message. it rarely achieves that fully. It also functions on a lesser level of just amusement, which is a nice guy, a likable, engaging guy doing tricks. And that's fine. That's fine for what it is. As long as the nice guy doing tricks knows that he's a nice guy doing tricks and doesn't think they're doing some high art. And, you know, it's... I love bizarre magic, but it's rarely done well because it is so arch. It, it, it is so hard to fill the character of the bizarre magician. And you, it's not only the character, but it's also the environment that you have to create because mood is so important to support the character with bizarre magic. And we went to the trouble of doing that with Play Dead. But like last night, it would not be appropriate to go in dressed all in black and say, let me tell you about an insane asylum in in London. No, they, no, no. They didn't want that. They wanted, I got a mama and papa bunny here, you see, and you put them together and they make babies and they scream because it happened in their hand and that's exactly it. And then they're going to go sing karaoke. That's the experience. That's what they wanted. That's what was appropriate. Very possibly someone else could have gone in there and told them about an insane asylum in in uh, in London uh, where some horrible things happen and they're going to do a book test. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, but it's, that's kind of the extreme, but even kind of pulling it back, it, you have to be, you have to, I think to be a magician, you have to understand and have on some level the uh, sensibilities of a con artist. And the good con artists were very flat-footed. And what I mean by that is they were who they were. They didn't apologize to anyone, especially to themselves, about what they were doing. And they brought themselves into it. And that's how Bernard Madoff was able to made made off with those, you know, all that money is because he was who he was and there was, he was seamless. He wasn't trying to be anything other than he was pulling off a terrible crime. So it's the same thing that if you're going to do a car trick, it better be your car trick. You know, it's Vernon or, or Rick Lax, who, you know, it, whoever, if you didn't create it and it came from someone else, it better be you and you better be comfortable with it whether it's that or, or you know, raising the dead for fun and profit. And it's fun that way because, you know, it's, it's make-believe and in a very good way, you know, and you get paid to do it. And you, if you have fun with it and just let it come from inside you, uh, it can be very rewarding on many, many levels. But I might be wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Mr. Todd Robbins. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Todd and I had a few more cups of coffee while he told me morbid Todd-style jokes, which had me in tears of laughter. We both ventured outside into the cold and said our goodbye. Todd graciously gave me a few more names to add to the book, and with a final handshake, he vanished into the wild streets of New York. I headed back up to my hotel room to get ready with my wife, Megan, to explore the Big Apple for the day. It was a quick trip, but so worth the while.